Please join me for a word of prayer. God in heaven, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning. Uh, the subject of this morning is a very important event in the life of the church, the baptism of Christ. And uh, the Bible gives us a couple of keys as why this is a really important event. Uh, number one reason we know it's an important event, it's the first uh, event of Jesus' public ministry. So Christmas is what we've just come out of, and clearly the focus of the Christmas is the babe in the manger, the angels, the shepherds, etc. But here we turn the page and Jesus begins his public ministry. And the first act of his public ministry is something surprising. It's his own baptism. Second reason we know it's important is because it's one of the few events that's in, recorded in all Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now there's some overlap, uh, but, but surprisingly there, there's a lot of events you may think are really important that don't make it in all four. For instance, Christmas. Christmas makes it into two Summarized by a third, uh, Matthew and Luke tell us about Christmas. John summarizes and Mark skips it. But all of the Gospels include this event, the baptism of Christ. So by that measure alone, you have to say, hmm, the Gospels want us to focus on this event a little bit more than even that momentous event of Christmas. Third reason is not a biblical one, but just a tradition of the church. Uh, the church has set apart a couple of days of celebrations, feast days. Christmas is one of those. Easter is one of those. But there are other days that are really important in the life of, the, life of Christ that are celebrated by the church. And the baptism is one of those. It's one of those traditional celebrations of, of the church. So it's an important event. We know because it's the first event. It's recorded in all Gospels, and the church has traditionally set this apart as a, as, a, as a celebration. As important as it is, it's also kind of puzzling. It's a strange event for Jesus to begin his ministry. And there's many, Jesus has many strange events in his ministry. M many events, if we were there, we think, that's not what we expected to see or say uh, for him to do or say. And this is one of those events. Let me explain its strangeness. Matthew chapter 3 begins uh, with John the Baptist. Now, he's a character that we know we've, we've encountered before. Uh, he is related to Jesus, likely his cousin. Uh, John the Baptist knows his place with Jesus. He knows that he is the greater, and he is there to prepare the way for him. So in Matthew chapter 3, uh, John begins his ministry by saying, The voice of the in one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So John recognizes his ministry as one of preparation. And the early part of Matthew chapter 3 records his preparation. And John the Baptist has, uh, by way of opening act, an old-fashioned revival on his hands. Let me read. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He's out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And in verse Five of that same chapter, then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Hundreds, if not thousands of men and women from, uh, from Jerusalem traveled out to the, the wilderness, baptized as a, a symbolically washing themselves free of their sins and making a commitment to God. This is the opening act. John has the crowd ready. And now the curtain opens and in comes Christ, the main event. So the expectations are high. And John is puzzled when Jesus insists that he is baptized. And you can uh, pick up John's confusion in the passage that was read to us. I need to be baptized by you. 
Why, why are you seeking to be baptized by me? In other words, John's saying, here, I've got the crowd. They're ready. They're, they've confessed. They're committed. They're ready to be led to whatever you're going to lead them to. They're ready for you to lead them, not join them. What are you doing? It's a puzzling event. And so this morning, we're going to ask two basic questions of this. We're going to try to reconcile why this is so important, recorded in all four Gospels, etc., but yet it's kind of puzzling. And I'm going to ask two basic questions this morning. What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? By the way, those are two good questions that you can ask whenever you're approaching any passage of Scripture. What's it mean? What's it mean to me? So first, what does the baptism of Christ mean? Said differently, why was Christ baptized? Well, let me rule out one reason why Jesus was baptized, why he wasn't baptized. He wasn't baptized for the same reason that everybody else was baptized. Everybody else came to the Jordan River in order to be cleansed from their sin and make a commitment to God. Jesus had no sins from which he was cleansed. And this is a constant theme of the New Testament. Uh, he is described as the spotless lamb in 1 Peter chapter 1. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Actually, the best testimony of Christ's sinlessness comes from Pontius Pilate and his passion. Pontius Pilate speaks for the entire uh, uh, Roman court, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. He's sinless. So Jesus was not baptized for the remission of sins. He had no sins to repent of. So, again, why was Christ baptized? I think in order to consider that question, it will be helpful to think about our baptism. What does our baptism signify? What do we mean when we baptize someone? Now, on January 26th, next two Sundays away, we'll celebrate the service of baptism. And uh, at the end of that service, we're going to say some very significant words. We're going to say... We receive you into, I'm an, I'm at the conclusion of that service, I will say, let us welcome the newly baptized. And you, as the congregation, are going to say, we receive you into the fellowship, into the fellowship of Christ's church. That's not all you say, but that, that is the best part of what you're going to say. We receive you into to the fellowship of Christ's church. Now, opinions about what baptism is and when it should happen and what it implies vary from denomination to denomination, but I think all churches are unified in this opinion that baptism is the means by which you and I are identified with the, new, with the people of God. We are, it is the means by which we uh, are recognized as members of Christ's church. We get our passport. That's why the baptism is the one service that has to be done in public. It's the one act of your Christian piety that you're not supposed to do in private. Pray in private, worship in private, give in private. Baptism has to be public because you're making a public acclamation that this child or I will be connected to Christ's church from this point forevermore. It is a service of identification. Right? Identification. The baptized is identified with the people of God, and that is how we should think about the baptism of Christ. His, the purpose of his baptism was not for the remission or the removal of sins. The purpose of his baptism was for identification. Identification with who? With sinners. With all those people 
who are going out to the Jordan River in order to be baptized. Right At the end of our service, we say, we welcome you into the fellowship of Christ's church. If there was a liturgy for Christ's baptism, it would be, we welcome you into the fellowship of tax collectors and sinners and all those other folks that were coming out to the Jordan River in order to undergo the waters of baptism. In his baptism, he publicly declares himself to be with sinners. And this will be a constant critique of Jesus throughout his life and ministry. Here is a man who eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. He is constantly with sinners. And this will culminate, of course, in the end of his life when he not only is with sinners but dies for sinners. And it begins here at his baptism as he publicly associates himself with sinners. That makes sense. Not for removal of sin, as our baptism is, but for identification with the people of God, you and me. So that's what it means. Second question, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? So what? Well, here is one potential application, implication of Christ's baptism for you and me. I believe that if we appreciated Jesus' baptism, what he did there in taking his place with sinners, you and I would have the best reason for self-confidence, and we would have the best antidote for shame. Self-confidence and the antidote for shame. Let me explain. Uh, First, let's unpack that nasty word, shame. Shame is one of the most unpleasant human emotions. I think it ranks up there in the top... Three unpleasant emotions. Shame is described as, uh, well, described by me as guilt on steroids. Uh, And I found an article of a counselor describing his interaction with a a man named Sam. Listen to how this counselor describes Sam, who was wrestling with his shame. So the counselor writes, For most of his life, Sam didn't think that he had done bad things that's guilt, but that he was bad himself. That's the essence of shame. Guilt focuses on what we do. Shame focuses on who we are or we, who we perceive ourselves to be. In other words, shame is that, that voice inside your head saying, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And if you like me, it's only to the degree that you don't really know me. Shame. Second, the counselor continues, Sam told me that he, just often, that he often just wanted to disappear. The counselor, counselor writes, that is a dead giveaway for shame. Shame makes us want to hide, to disappear, to flee, and to isolate. And isn't that accurate? When we say things like, I just want to crawl in a hole and hide. That is a telltale sign. In other words, we've defined shame. It's not guilt. Guilt is uh, focusing on what we do. Shame is on who we are. But the um, shame is expressed by the sentiment of hiding and fear and isolation and withdrawal. And you've probably been there. I've probably been there. And it is very unpleasant. Third, this back to the counselor. The third thing that Sam talked about about was the antidote for his shame. And this is where it gets good. Sam told me that a friend of his did not have any solutions 
didn't even have any real advice. The friend simply told him that he didn't want, to want him to disappear, that he'd miss him if he were gone. Now, that's a great antidote for shame. Did you hear it? The antidote for shame is someone who knows you and is unashamed of you. There it is. The antidote for shame is someone who knows you and is yet unashamed. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we read this. Jesus is not ashamed to call you, to call me, his brothers, his sisters. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed of you. And that is exactly what Jesus acts out in his baptism as he publicly takes his place with sinners. And his lack of embarrassment about you and about me is not because he doesn't know you or know me. Our opening prayer, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known from you, no secrets are hid. Over Christmas break, my kids found a game called uh, Would You Rather? A little card game that said, uh, give a couple of options. Would you rather travel through space or travel through time? One of the questions was, would you rather have x-ray vision or know people's thoughts? I said, kids, both of those are awful. You don't really want either, but the worst of those is to know people's thoughts. Because I'm ashamed of my own thoughts, and you're ashamed of your own thoughts. Your hidden thoughts you don't want anyone to see, nor do I. But God knows them and yet is unashamed. He knows me perfectly, knows you perfectly, and is still yet unashamed. And not just unashamed, he's actually proud. Would you believe that? Let me continue from this passage from Hebrews that I referenced. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Now, who is the he who sings? Jesus singing whose praises? Your praises, my praises, in the midst of his heavenly company. Now, that just seems baffling. That I would not just be an object of pity of, oh, there's Glade. Cut him some slack. He's trying. He married well. No, <laughs> that I would be an object of God's delight. It seems, as C.S. Lewis would say, it seems like a, a weight or a, a burden of glory, impossible to endure, but yet so it is. The baptism of Christ is the antidote for my shame, your shame, and the source of your self-confidence, because the one whose opinion matters most, and the one who knows you most, is unashamed of you, to call you brother. And because of that, I am free to be vulnerable, free to be transparent, free to let myself be known. That's one of the points of our small group ministry, to know others and to be known ourselves, to take a little step of saying, yeah, this is who I am. I'm free to be who God has made me to be free to be just a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. So let me summarize. The baptism of Christ is important. First events, one of the few events recorded in all the Gospels. 
one of the events that the church sets apart for an annual celebration. This is one of the things we're supposed to hear every year. The purpose of Christ's baptism, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is unashamed to join the company of sinners. He's unashamed of you. And what does that mean for you and me? It means that you and I have the best antidote for shame. We have the best reason for self-confidence. A Savior who knows us fully, yet is unashamed of us and even proud of us. So let me conclude by Encouraging us to just imagine that scene that I quoted out of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus, in the company of heaven, talking about you. It seems impossible, it seems ridiculous if it wasn't recorded for us, but here is what it says. I will tell of your name, my name, your name. I will tell of your name in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And as we imagine that, maybe we can feel that nasty emotion of shame fading away. Feel a little self-confidence rising in us as Jesus Christ unashamedly sings our praises to the congregation of heaven. And I end with a quote from C.S. Lewis, to please God, to be a real ingredient in his happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory that our thoughts can hardly sustain, but yet, it is so.